Welcome back. Uh, last time we talked about the three stages um, of the Christian faith. You have construction, you have deconstruction, and then uh, at the end you have a kind of reconstruction. We spent the last episode really digging into the phenomenon and reality of doubt and deconstruction. Um, whether we like it or not, it is a natural part of our experience. It's something that can texture and nuance uh, our faith. Um, There is doubt and challenges in all relationships, as we talked about. But I want to spend some time now with AJ talking more about deconstruction itself, theoretically, but also practically. Um, AJ, in your book, you talk about deconstruction as... um, a phenomenon where there can be good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I think one of the questions that we talked about in the last episode that we didn't really get a chance to answer was, well, we don't we don't we don't want to encourage doubt and deconstruction, do we? That's not the goal here. Um, what we're talking about when we talk about deconstruction, more often than not, is not something that we proactively create. These are things that we find ourselves in. Right. Right. I don't know too many people that like really love God that are just sort of yearning for the day that we can sort of have these epistemic crises, uh, you know, where we find ourselves smoking cigars and drinking (laughs) vodka in the, in the bathtub because we, we don't know what to do with our faith anymore. I think we all, we all want to make sense of the world and we all want to have a God that we can trust and believe in. And so I don't think any of this is like something that somebody chooses. It is more often than not. I've, I've often described doubt as kind of like sneezing a little bit. Like we all, we all know what it looks like when somebody's trying to hold it all in. They just look like an absolute fool. And then if you keep it in, it actually is really harmful for you. You need to, you need to let it out. You need to right. really, really sneeze. Um, when it comes to deconstruction, and, and this is in my experience, and I'm going to guess it's in yours as well and likely those that are listening, a lot of this depends on what our goal is. So it, something is good or bad based on the telos of the thing, the end, the goal. Like, what is the goal? And I think that if how we determine that is going to change what good or bad is. And, and I think it is absolutely fair, rooted in the Christian tradition. It is rooted in Scripture that the goal is to know and love and enjoy God. Right. We were made for that, right? That we were created by God to know and love God. That we would, as Jesus says, have eternal life, which he says in John, is to know the one who's been sent, right? That not, It's this sense of being known and know God. That's the goal. And so if that is the goal, if that's the telos of the Christian story is to know and be known by God, then there is clearly a good form of deconstruction and a bad form of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. I would say a good form of de- deconstruction would be would be this. Would be the person who um, loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they are seeking to love God. They, care, they believe the Bible to be true and right and trustworthy and reliable. And they, they desire to know God for who God is. But man alive, when they see the church prop up some political regime, right? Or they see the church um, stand for something that Jesus does not stand for, or they see their Christian leaders not reflecting the ways of Jesus, and all of a sudden their faith and their experience are being shaken. 
the process by which we follow God in those moments of cognitive dissonance, you know, from time to, you, you mentioned in our last episode, what do you do when your Christian hero falls? Mm. We, we have been rocked in the evangelical world by the scandal of Ravi Zacharias. It's absolutely right. heartbreaking of watching our heroes in the faith not be the people we thought that they were. When in reality, actually, the same is true with all the biblical characters. There's not one person in the room who's going to look at David and go, we've got to be like that guy. <laughs> um, these are all the folks in the, in, in the, that we have to follow. They're very, very broken individuals, and nobody should defend the actions uh, of, of these men, these people. But if you're not rocked at your core, if you listened to the Ravi and, and met Jesus because you heard him make a compelling argument for the existence of God. And then all of a sudden the guy that taught you how to love God is no longer, is is clearly not living the way that he, he said he was. Right. That should rock you at your core. Yeah. And, and, it, it, and I'm not saying rock in the sense that you shouldn't be a Christian. It hurts. And, and you have to make your way through that and actually allow that experience to teach you that our hero was never Ravi. Our hero is Jesus. And Ravi was a very broken medium of Jesus. That's good deconstruction, is our pursuit of God through hard, challenging, and difficult things and not giving up. And so in a way, that's good. I'm going to, but I'm going to juxtapose that with, with, with bad deconstruction. Because there is a form of deconstruction I'm seeing now that is not reflective of this at all. It is reflective of uh, individuals who are not seeking to pursue God through difficulties, but are individuals who uh, and communities that are rejecting God and who God is, likely because we just don't like Him. And and this in the book I actually outlined often deconstruction is just a mark of privilege, right? And that is that we 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 actually rip the Bible apart because of our own cultural blind spots, our own cultural commitments and sensitivities. And so we, 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 this is reflective of my student who says, I could never believe in a God who created hell. Right, right. I could never believe in a God that thinks that way about sexuality. What they're really saying at the end of the day is I can only love God as long as he reflects my culture. Right. My values. My values. And I had a student in my office uh, recently, who uh, was telling me, you know, on, on the sexuality conversation, for example, I'm, I'm I'm relatively conservative on the topic, and I had a student in my office who was saying, um, we were talking about sexuality, and I said, what What do you think God thinks about this? And she said, Well, um, I think God's evolved. Mm. And I said, Well, when you say God's evolved, what's he evolved into? And she said, Well, I think God in the Bible sort of had these commitments, but now he's like more open minded and open hearted. And I looked at her and I just spouted out. I came out of my mouth. I said, are we talking about God or you? Hmm. Because what she was describing was not God. She was describing her journey right. and then making God in her image, which is the eternal problem, is that we were made in the image of God and then we returned the favor, right? That's the eternal problem. Bad deconstruction <laughs> is, is when we actually begin to turn God into what we want him to be because we think we're more generous than Jesus is or we're kinder than God is. And that kind of deconstruction of reforging who God is around what we want him to be is a very dark form of deconstruction and a kind that I would say to everyone, run away from. It right. is death. 
Well, you know, that, that reminds me of an experience I had. We were, we were interviewing uh, a candidate for faculty at a seminary that I ta- taught for. And uh, this was a, a man who's a good friend of mine. And he had done his education at the top schools of critical study of ancient texts. And he'd studied with what we think of as very liberal, uh, you know, academics. And yet he was coming to teach at a Christian uh, uh, college. And we asked him, you know, how do you, how do you stay strong in the faith? Having studied all this critical material, having studied, you know, all the stuff where people try to pick apart, deconstruct the Bible. He had a very simple answer, which I was not expecting. He just said, my relationship with God is is not built on any of that. It's built on my experience of God. Mm. I thought, wow. If we, so that made me think in a lot of situations where deconstruction leads people away from God, away from the faith. I'm just guessing, but I feel like in many cases, their faith wasn't in God. Their faith was in people. Mm. People are going to let you down. Mm. Mm. I think Paul learned that the hard way. But um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, so I'll get, I'll tell a case study. Um uh, at the beginning of my career, I worked at a school in Seattle, and I was about a mile and a half. I lived about a mile and a half away from Mars Hill Church, where Mark Driscoll uh, was the pastor. And a friend of mine, uh, you know, several friends of mine, we we witnessed the collapse of Mars Hill because of all the the scandals uh, that were going on there, and uh, numerous people left the faith, um, and you know. If if people's faith were in Mark Driscoll or or any leader that's kind of struggled with that those kinds of situations, of course you're going to leave. Absolutely. I mean, many people I literally idolized these Christian leaders, and and we've set up a culture around that 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 we have these leaders, and for all intents and purposes, they are God. Yep. And then you find out about misuse of power or misuse of money or sexual abuse. And then can there be any recovery from that? Yeah. Um, so I, I you know, that, that made me really think um, we need to be careful that Christian leaders are not placing themselves in the position of God. Yes. I, I'm struck, Nijay, as a New Testament scholar, you, you've no doubt seen this, um, I'm struck at how many times in in the in the book of Acts, um, Paul, one of his traveling companions, whatnot, will come into a city, and people will start to worship him. Yeah, and he rejects it. He yeah. says, "You you stop this. This is I'm not who you think I am. I'm not what you say I am." And the the celebrity worship that we have created has created an environment where this is taking place. You know, I, I I remember reading, for example, when I was a teenager, read I Kissed Dating Goodbye with Joshua Harris, a book that he has disavowed. He's de- deconstructed his own faith and walked away from Christianity. But uh, reading reading that book and being enamored with Christian celebrity, like being enamored with the hero on the stage who was the— um, who was the hero I could finally trust. And part of it was that I didn't have a dad in the room hmm. to be able to look up to. And so Christianity provided a set of heroes to become those dads. Well, I found out that those heroes are just as broken as my own father right. is and that I can't replace um, a broken father with other broken fathers. They're all, they're all, they're, they're all the same, but I'm, st- I'm struck that even in the book of Acts, celebrity worship was, was, was a, was a, a problem. And actually it was pointed out to me that in the book of Revelation, 
when John is writing against the Nicolaitans, <laughs> that the Nicolaitans were the only, it was a group of Christians who were known by the leader of the community, this guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that it was a community named after the leader. That sounds more like American Christianity than it does anything else. Um, we, we, we have, a, we put ourselves in a very dangerous position when our faith is dependent on the wrong heroes. Even the gospels, for heaven's sake. Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He's telling Peter's story. And Mark goes out of his way to tell the story of Peter's denial. (laughs) The fact that we, that is Peter self-disclosing his own brokenness. When we prop ourselves up as heroes, we set people up to need to deconstruct their faith later on. Yeah. Well, even, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Um, the gospels are assuming the small faith and mm. waywardness um, of, of the people. And in our, in our worst moments, um, we Christians are really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but in our best moments, even though we're failures, um, we know how to forgive because we know what it's like to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And there's something uh, really powerful in that. Uh, there's something really beautiful in that. I want to, I want to change gears here and talk about, because I, you know, a question that sometimes comes up when it comes to doubt is, um, did Jesus ever doubt? Hmm. And, you know, people have asked, did Jesus doubt he was the Messiah? I don't know if we know the answer to that question. Did Jesus doubt, um, if, if he could save the world, I don't know. Famously, Albert Schweitzer has argued that Jesus, you know, uh, he was crushed on this kind of wheel of history mm-hmm. and he tried to change the world, but didn't. But then in the end, his love is a symbol of, uh, of, of goodness to all. I think there's definitely more to it than that. But there's this interesting moment in the Gospels, uh, specifically in, in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus... Uh, is on the cross and he has these sayings. And one of the most famous sayings is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's Jesus, our Savior, Son of God, dying for the sins of the world in Christian you know, theology. And yet, one of the most memorable things that Jesus ever said was a question without an answer to his Father, to God, and he doesn't say, my father says, my God, mm. why have you forsaken me? I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to allow you to answer this question since I don't, since I don't know the answer, AJ, but I'm going to allow you to answer it. But I'm going to tell you a little bit of nerdy uh, textual history here. Uh, according to um, one of my friends, Joel Green, uh, there are some Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark where they thought that this was too extreme. For Jesus to say, why have you forsaken me? Even though he's quoting a psalm here, so I think Psalm 22. Uh, they actually soften it to, why Why have you dishonored me? Because why have you forsaken me is just too much. Mm. What, what do we do with that, AJ? I mean, here he is, Jesus, our hero, leader of the faith, son of God, asking this question that doesn't really get answered, especially not in the Gospel of Mark. Why have you forsaken me? If mm. God can forsake Jesus... How can we trust God not to forsake us? Hmm. Hmm. <clears throat> At some point along the way, I don't remember where it was. 
I was uh, listening to a focus on the family uh, talk somewhere. I don't remember who, where, when or where it was a number of years ago. And it was a debate, uh, this very interesting debate between these two psychologists around if you're a parent, two parents, and you want to raise your sons, your daughters well, you know, do you ever, do you argue in front of them or do you argue in a back room? Mm. And the, the debate was, you know, one guy would say never argue in front of your kids because then at the end of the day, they think you don't have a healthy marriage. And then, right. and the other one was like, no, you actually argue in front of the kids. You, you do it because you're actually teaching them how to do reconciliation. And that that debate, that focus on the family debate, just has stuck in the back of my mind for years. And here's why it, it, it has stuck in my mind. The number of young people who, who graduate from high school in Christian homes, they leave their house, and within a year, these parents that seem to have perfect Christian faith Call it, call it quits. They go through divorce, having never seen their parents argue. Yeah. And what is happening is they, they never saw what was really going on. And because they never saw what was really going on, um, they were blind to it. And then all of a sudden, they feel lied to this whole time. I am struck that God is willing to show us a moment of difficulty in the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Yeah. And, you know, this doesn't break, by the way, this does not break the unity of the Trinity. The Father, Jesus says, God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? They were still one. What's beautiful about that is, is a moment of relational struggle is not the end of unity. Yeah. It is actually a sign of oneness. The, the fact that, that we have people uh, that, 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 that argue, I, I want to argue in front of my son. Yeah. I want to show my son that unity and struggle can happen together. I don't know any other religion where God is honest to God about his struggles. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I'll tell you, AJ, that um, we passed your test because my, my wife and I argue in front of the kids. Yeah. And actually, they'll go in the other room and pray for us. I'm not even kidding. Wow. They'll be like, let's pray for them to stop arguing. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the way I look at it is very similar. Um, when Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? Surely he is feeling this this difficulty and darkness, just as he did in the garden when he said, if it be your will, let this cup pass me by. This is doubt. Yeah. I, I mean, if you read the church fathers, they try to paper over this. They try to say, oh, he was pretending no, if he really was human, stepped into our situation, he put himself in a position of experiencing the deepest black hole of our discouragement, disappointment, doubt, tears, sorrow, you name it. And, um, you know, the fact that he's praying this psalm means he really knows what it's like to be like us, mm -hmm. to experience what we experience. And yet... You know, in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Mm -hmm. So there's resilience there, but he really feels it. He really, you know, we li we're living this pandemic right now. I feel like it's aged me like 10 years. Yeah. It's like, you remember, you remember the movie Princess Bride, the machine that yeah. makes you age? Yeah, like, that's but yeah, right. yeah. It feels just like that. And you kind of feel grown up having gone through a hard, difficult experience. I feel like Jesus aged like 20 years yeah, in yeah. that last week because he had to lean into 
uh, our, our darkest hours. And what Hebrews says is, and I love this, though a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Hmm. Though a son means, um, surely as a son of God, he gets a pass to not experience doubt and difficulty. Surely as son of God, he gets the silver spoon. Surely as a son of God, he gets you know promoted into the senior class or whatever. And yet Jesus himself, son of God, had to go through that dark night of the soul yes. that we have to go through. So, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, this goes back to my Christian worship leader days. Um, I remember going to a concert with Skillet. Remember Skillet? Classic, classic. We're in the throwback era of Cobra Kai and Stranger Things, so I got to bring out Skillet here. So my, I think maybe my first or second Skillet concert, I'm, I'm a child of, of Ohio, so I went to every Christian concert imaginable. But um, I went to a Skillet concert, and the lead singer, I can't remember his name, but he, he talked about how, before the, when the concert was beginning, he talked about how he had this dream. And some of the listeners out here who are big CCM fans may remember this. He had this dream where he's basically sitting at like a diner across the table from, from God. And uh, God says, you know, you know, how are you? He said, I'm fine. And he says, you know, I want your heart. Can I have it? He said, okay. So he, he takes out his heart and then God pours gasoline on it and lights it on fire. <laughs> and this person's just watching in horror as this happens. And it becomes an inspiration for some of his songs. Um, but I think what I take away from Jesus's own experience, what I take away from Hebrews, what I take away from my own experience is if you sign up for this Christian thing, you're going to be put through boot camp. That's basically what Hebrews is saying. Um, you don't get a golden star. You don't get a trophy for participation. I remember, you know, a famous New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, in several of his books, he says this about New Testament theology. Um, no cross, no crown. Mm, mm. And if you'd rather get it from uh, David Crowder, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> um, there's a theolo- theological concept called cruciformity. Mm-hmm. And it comes, in my mind, especially from Galatians, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse has been kind of my life verse since I was 16 because you don't circumvent the cross just because Jesus died. Jesus basically says, AJ, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is there's no way around death. The good news is I've made a path through death to the other side. And I think the Christianity that we're used to selling – in music or on, in sermons, is a circumvention, an exchange theology. We're getting really theological here, but I'm with a theologian, so you're warned. Um, w- there's another theory called interchange by Morna Hooker, and she argues that actually New Testament theology teaches not that we go around the cross through Jesus, but that we ourselves, just as Paul says, we have to be crucified too talks about crucifying the flesh, crucifying the passions. I really feel like good construction is a process of cruciformity, giving up sacred idols, giving up sacred cows, and actually just realizing maybe the goal of life isn't 
just to be happy. That's exactly right. The, all of Nijay, all of the the spiritual heroes for me that have actually back to this conversation about spiritual heroes who have actually had the deepest impact on my life. People like Henry Nouwen, people like C.S. Lewis, people like Marva Dawn, mm-hmm. people I could go on. These people that all of them have some dimension of their life. Flannery O'Connor right. had something in their life they never got that they always wanted. Yeah. I mean, I think about Henry Nowen, his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, Nowen, uh, you know, wrestled with same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a part of his, his, his journey. And there was something about that experience that led him through the cruciformity. Um, I, you know, we, we think about Flannery O'Connor, uh, who had lupus. She died of lupus. Wow. Um, there's a, my grandma, when she gave us her baking sheets when she died, her baking sheets had, and you know this, like old baking sheets. When they've been cooked for like 50 years, they get this like black stuff on them. Yeah. There's a word for that. They call it patina. Yeah, yeah. And patina is the, it's the result of being in the fire long enough. The people who truly get this cruciformity, who truly understand the cross, are people who at the core did not get everything they wanted. Right. And they embraced that cross and found God in the middle of it. Back to Lewis one last time in his reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis who's talking about Psalm 22. And he draws this parallel. He says, you know, Psalm 22 was quoted by Jesus in his death. But what, what's ominous about the story of Jesus on the cross is that he asked the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. Hmm. There is silence. And some could look at that and go, look at God failing Jesus. But God's greatest gift to us is not answers. It's his presence. Right. And often in those moments where we are full of doubt, we want answers, but that's not what's God, what God's given. And we need to receive the gift God is giving. It's like Job. Job comes to God and says, he wants to rip him apart. God, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And finally gets to meet with God. And actually all the questions are for Job. <laughs> Job doesn't even get a question in. And all the questions are from Job. And what does Job do? He stands or silent. The truth of the matter is, God is not an answer machine. His primary goal is not to give us all the answers. His primary goal is to give us himself. That is his goal. And there's a reason our main Eucharistic moment is not a series of questions and answers. It's a piece of bread. Hmm. We enjoy it. We take it in. And so at the end of the day, you know, back, back, to, back to your points about cruciformity and um, walking through the cross, right? Psalms, uh, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Boy, oh boy, we'd love to walk around it. We would all love to walk around it. I think those, Nijay, that that are hearing this and they're going, I I really want God. I, th- I, think, I, I think I would want to say to that person who really wants God, you need to prepare yourself for a little bit of a theology of the cross. Mm-hmm. You need to prepare yourself a little bit for moments of profound loss and sadness. Because God, in order to make us mature people who have left those elementary things, we need to be people with some patina. Mm -hmm. And doubt, deconstruction, often becomes the way through which we have to go through that. Again, we don't want to valorize doubt and deconstruction. But we do want to say, 
that sometimes the way God accomplishes cruciformity is through those things. And, and you know, I, th- I think a big theme of what we've been talking about the last few episodes is preparing ourselves for not being built up to having perfect knowledge. Um, I feel like the churches that focus on, hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna have a hour and ten minute sermon, like the super sermon, you know, they kind of sometimes set you up for this assumption that if you go through this church for two or three years, you're gonna know everything. And I think that's one reason we have a very heady perspective on what Christian faith and life is. Um, you know, I I I respect and value people who don't have high educations, don't have all the brainiac answers, but have a really simple faith of, I just try to love God and love neighbor every day. Yeah. It's hard. But, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my heroes from day in day-to-day life are those people who don't have a seminary education, but just say, gosh, when I read the Bible, I see a certain way of living in the world that is going to make the world a better place. And, you know, it's great. I value so much the education I have, but I'll tell you what, the academy is a pretty snobby, stuck up place. Mm -hmm. And it really bothers me. I've said this before on social media, but I just continue to feel it's true. People sometimes feel a real pride in being cynical. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a kind of, I'm smarter than God. I'm smarter than the church. Now, one thing that I've noticed, and I, I think you've noticed this in your book, AJ, is deconstruction with a certain kind of doubting community can lead to some relief because people are exposing the scandals. They're exposing the false Christianity. I think that's good. But if you live in that space, yeah. yep. it's gonna it's a toxic place. Yep. And, and one thing that I feel like is happening a lot when people kind of live in the doubt Doubt is a good tool, but if you live in it, I feel like you're re- replacing one way of living with nothing. Yep. Um, is is that a part of the problem, do you think, of one, bad deconstruction? 100%. I saw on Twitter, uh, somebody just the other day said, you know, deconstruction is like Vegas. It's a great place to visit, but don't you dare want to live there. It'll, exactly. it'll destroy you. Um, yeah, there comes this... Um, there comes this this shift. Augustine wrote about this. He, he and 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 actually, uh, uh, it's been sort of re- revisited by a number of people who have who have attempted to articulate his work. But this idea of um, character solidification, which is that we we actually become the kinds of people that do what we do. That is, what we do actually shapes us into the people that do those things. Our character forms yeah. us in such a way that we need to continue to do those things. When So what that means is when we spend all of our time deconstructing, at some point we stop deconstructing and we start becoming deconstructors. Right. We actually become people who need to destruct something, deconstruct something simply because that's our character. And, you know, we you never want to give a hammer to a kid because – Everything becomes the hammer right. or everything becomes the nail. Um, when when everything is doubt and deconstruction, then you actually s- slip into this place where you have to deconstruct something 
unless or you don't have value you don't i mean you see you see this this incessant need once you've begun to pull it apart well where's the end i mean great if we want to have a conversation about the different layers of the book of isaiah and how interesting it is that maybe different communities wrote it at different times and you've got these yeah let's great and well let's do it but that is that can easily over time when all we are doing is attempting to um pull apart like a mechanic, a, 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 an engine, and that's all we know how to do. Well, there comes a, part, a point where engines, you don't have any engines left. You've, you've, you've literally right. pulled apart all the engines and you're you all You can't done. go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> so it takes care. Actually, I'd say this. It takes character to deconstruct well, because you have to know not only when it's right to undo, but when to stop. Right. And if you don't stop, you're going to be standing there one day and and you're going to have completely undone the rock you were standing on. And that's a scary place to be. Well, I often talk with my students about the Christian, our Christian faith as like a house and the house is always under renovation, but you really just renovate one room at a time. If you renovate the entire thing, then that's, you know, the house is going to collapse. There's just no way to do it. You're knocking out walls all the time. But the house still has to have a solid foundation. I think I experience this most when it comes to things like, for example, the canon. How the canon came about. It was how the, how the Bible of, came about. Yeah, yeah the Bible yeah. canon. You know, it came about in a kind of um, just sort of happened kind of way. Obviously, the spirit was behind it, but there wasn't some big meeting of all the Christians uh, where they just you know waved a wand and then there it is. And I I think that was a hard struggle for me to realize that, but. You know, again, as I continue to live into the virtues of Christian faith, revisit these things, you do it piece by piece, and then, but your faith is always built on this relationship with God, not on any of those individual pieces by themselves, right? Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful way to imagine it. And, and it also permits us to not feel like we have to entirely perfect our faith um, by the end of this year, that we have some time and some space and that we can question certain elements of our faith without losing the whole faith. And I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the goal. That's the goal for all of us. And, and I would hope um, that we would begin to doubt with, with character um, and know when, when and where to stop and have some boundaries. And um, there was a book written a couple of years ago by David Dark uh, about questioning everything. The, the whole premise of the book was just um, how to question everything. And I, 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 it was a very interesting book. But I don't want to question everything. Right. I don't want to question my wife's love for me. I don't want to question God's love for the world. I don't want to question that God is real. I don't want to question God's goodness. <laughs> I think it's good to question things. But yeah. there are some things that are too good to question. Well, this is great, AJ. And uh, it's been really helpful to talk more through deconstruction. Next time, we're going to actually talk through reconstruction and having a theology of hope as we seriously face the realities of faith and doubt. Thanks for listening.